This morning um, as well, uh, this is kind of a bad morning to have a sinus thing going on because I want to be very clear <laughs> this morning. Um, I want to be very uh, genuine to the text, but I also don't want to weird us out because of the topic that we're jumping into today. So this is not going to be a sermon that you need to cover your kids' ears. Uh, this is not going to be one of those sermons that you're kind of like, oh, I don't know if we should talk about this in church. Um, but it is going to be something that I feel like we have to address uh, as a church as a large because Paul is taking us there in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so I will try to stick as close to my notes as possible this morning. Um, I will try to uh, not just rabbit trail off and different things because I wanted to be clear this morning that sometimes in the church, he has called us um, not only to love him through worship and singing, but also to love him through um, correction. Um, there was a leadership uh, podcast I was listening to a couple weeks ago, and uh, they said one of the things that people don't tell you in the pastoral role, and probably in most big businesses or any business, is your, your job description, they don't tell you much about, is the, the job description that is the title of chief problem solver. And uh, the, the mentality was that the larger your organization grows or the larger your church grows, the more you as the leader need to grow in your ability to be the chief problem solver. In other words, the problems are going to go up and they're going to start to find their way up to the top. And as they're hitting the top, then we need to be able to figure out how do we solve certain problems. And this was true of Paul in the, in the church in Corinthians where there were problems in the church and they had risen from the bottom level all the way to the top and he has now received word of some pretty big issues in his church. Uh, the, the divisions and the arguments were one, but this is going to be the whole next level. So, so buckle in because of the next couple weeks together, uh, you're going to be hitting certain topics. You're like, are we okay to talk about this in church? Um, because these were the issues in the church in Corinth and not just were they issues in the church in Corinth, they were celebrated in the church in Corinth. Corinth. That's a whole other ballgame. It's one thing to be like, there's sin in the church, we kind of hide it. There's another thing to say, it's in the church and we are so excited for it and we clap it and applaud it and we're just loving that it's happening. And so this morning we're going to talk about how do we become chief problem solvers. And here's the other big takeaway this morning, if you get nothing else, is this. Um, you are not your own. If you belong to Jesus Christ, he's going to end uh, this morning talking about this idea that you are not your own. You are not just here for you. Uh, we say that on, on Sunday mornings that uh, this is not just a gathering to get and take, but this is a Sunday morning to come and to say who's here and, and how to be together as a family of believers and, and to say that I'm not here for myself this morning. That's a big statement in and of itself. But Paul says we are not our own. And so the issues that we're dealing with in the church and that Paul's dealing with were a church-wide problem and not just an individual problem. So that's where we're going to head for most of the morning. You are not your own. And as we kind of unpack that, you're going to see some different areas where he addresses these. So let's go ahead and um, jump in. Uh, we're going to be a couple different places in your, um, the uh, discussion guides. There's, uh, it just starts with verse 13. I'm going to back up a little bit. It should be uh, 5, 1 to 13. And so I want to kind of hit the very beginning of chapter 5 here. And then we're going to tie it in with chapter 6, 12 to uh, 20. So we're going to kind of skip over uh, some sections of chapter 6. Uh, you'll hear about those next week. Um, and also, this is my only rabbit trail. <laughs> right. Um, but this is, a, this is a good rabbit trail. Um, next week, I would really encourage you to be here. Um, a lot of people don't really know our elders too well. And so you've met Nathan, many of you, um, who's one of our elders. Um, and uh, the other one is Butch Persley. And uh, a lot of you guys have not had an opportunity to meet him simply because he is a lead pastor over at Maranatha Bible Church. And he has a lot on his plate as far as leading that size of a church and organization and other church plants. And so um, he was supposed to be over in Singapore 
leading a uh, underground church seminary for the pastors there because they're not allowed to do that legally. And so him and another pastor were supposed to go over, but obviously because of the coronavirus, he's not able to leave and they were canceling his flight. And so I said, Butch, you need to come to community. You've got some open weeks. I really need you to come. So next week, I'm super excited. Butch will be here next week uh, to preach on chapter six and for you guys to get to meet him. And so I could not be more excited for that. So I get a Sunday off and he gets to come in and um, be here. And so he's super excited as well to be part of that. So that's the rabbit trail. Um, But we're going to hit five and six this morning. I'm going to continue on. Okay, we're ready? Good response. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And then that's one issue. And then he continues in chapter 6, verse 14 uh, or 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food for the stomach, stomach for the food. Go down to 14. Um, and, and God raised the Lord and will also raise up us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And here's the issue. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So you've got two glaring sexual issues in the church as a whole. We've just gone from divisions and now we've stepped into whole new territory, Right. And, and this was coming from the front. This was, this was talked about and everything. And so uh, these were the two issues. First off, number one, um, there was the idea of one, one through four, the issue of incest. And, and what was happening, and just to be completely frank, is the, the fact that there was a son who his dad was still around, but he was sleeping with his mom. And many of the people in the church knew about it and not just knew about it, they celebrated it. They're like, yes, we are so tolerant. We are, we are so open-minded that, that this is perfect. This is fine. And so that was one of the issues. And that's just part of it. And then the second one was there was many in the church that were having uh, uh, relationships with prostitutes on an ongoing basis, right? Welcome to church. And you guys are like, see, this is why you need to come to church. You get interesting topics like this. But these were the two major issues. And the issues are interesting because they weren't just addressed individually. These were addressed corporately. And so that's why I feel like we need to address this corporately as well. He says, verse, verse two, you are arrogant, Ought you rather to mourn? Why are you celebrating these things? Why are you encouraging this kind of behavior? And here's some of their excuses that they had uh, from the text in and of itself. Phrase number one uh, comes from verse 12. So if Paul, well, let's, let's, before we get to 12, let's go back to verse five. He says, for though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And if if present, I already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. In other words, he's saying this has reached the top. 
I don't actually need to be there to, to, to bring judgment on this because I know that this is unacceptable. Not only is it unacceptable in the church, he goes back up to verse one, this is unacceptable in society as well. You're breaking the laws of society. You're also breaking the laws of, of God and his law. And he says, I don't even need to be present to be there. I can just call you out from where I am. And this is completely the wrong thing to do. And then he says to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. We'll get to that later and what all that looks like. But here's some of their excuses to Paul. So Paul's made this accusation. Here's what they would say back to Paul in verse um, 12. First off, they would say this, all things are lawful for me. (laughs) All things are permissible, Paul. Paul, don't you understand? Like we have this thing that Jesus promised to us called grace. And so since we have grace, we can just ask for forgiveness later and it won't be an issue. It's not a problem because we're, we're all allowed to do this. And they would actually use probably even some of Paul's language um, to remind them of these things. He, they would probably think of Romans 8, verses 1 and 2. There, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. They would probably go to Romans 6 and bring up the Romans 6 struggle with him. What shall we say then? Are we, t- are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, they said, this is fine, Paul. We're able to sin because that just gives us more grace. Paul responds in Romans 6, by no means. How can he, we who died to sin still live in it? Romans 6, 14 to 15. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Throughout Romans 6, throughout Romans and all of Paul's writing, even when this idea of freedom comes up, when he's speaking to the Galatians and beyond, he will tell them again and again, yes, there is great freedom to be found in Christ, but that freedom stops and ends where the law of Jesus Christ stops and ends. So what God says is unlawful for him is unlawful for me. And that's where he goes into this thing of, you say all things are lawful for you in this whole thing of grace, but this is not even tolerated among the pagans among you, let alone in the church. And so he, he says this phrase of all things are lawful for me, but he, he shuts it down by saying, it's still sin, and, and, and we are not to celebrate it, even become, as he says here, arrogant about it. So that's the first thing, is they tried to use this whole idea of grace as an issue. And in the church today, you can probably have a lot of different things in our own life that we get tempted into, that we desire to do, and we can say, well, God will cover it later. I can still sin, have fun now, because I've got this ticket to heaven, and, and therefore, since I've got that, I'll just go ahead and sin, and that makes grace even better for me. And Paul would warn us again and again that the further you go into sin, the more the consequences will be there. And the further the church allows members of its church to continue to be in sin, the further the church is in danger of of missing the point of why God has given us this freedom. So that's the first thing they would say. All things are lawful for me, verse 12. The other phrase that they would say, and this was a phrase that was in Corinth. It was a phrase that would have been used all the time. Um, I don't know what our phrases currently are today because it's probably a generational, like all over the place, like certain phrases that are generational to me versus generational to you. And there's probably a bunch of different mantras we live by. Um, But theirs was this, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. (laughs) So in other words, they would basically say this, I've got an appetite I'm going to feed the appetite. I am attracted. I will therefore follow. It's simply biological, Paul. 
that I can't help myself. It's just, I don't, I don't want to go into that world, but I just find myself there. It's strictly biological, is what they would say. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. Now, here's the issue. When we start talking about this is simply biological and this is just simply my body craving and those kind of things, they would even go so far, and you'll see later in Corinthians, that this church would even go so far as to say, it doesn't matter because our bodies are going to go into the dirt. And then since our bodies are going into the dirt and we don't bring those physical bodies with us to heaven, which is a whole theological issue we'll get into later, but we don't worry about our bodies, so let's corrupt our bodies because our bodies are so separated from our soul that, that we're, not, we're not tarnishing our soul, we're just tarnishing our body. And that's okay because our bodies are sin and broken, but our souls are holy and they're separated so I can do whatever I want with my body, but ultimately my soul is still intact what they're doing, and we are guilty of the same, is they're simply lessening the dignity and the worth of our physical bodies. They're, 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 they're taking it from what is high and respected and lowering it to the lowest possible place. And here's the truth of this statement when we think about it today, even for us as a church. The less you respect or appreciate something, the lower its worth will become. Let me say that again. The, the less you respect or appreciate something, the lower its worth will become. And we can think about this in a variety of areas, but let's just take it to the smallest one. How many things are in your garage right now that you have not touched in the last three years, right? But when you purchased that thing, it was precious, like nobody was allowed to touch it. Your kids weren't allowed to breathe on it, right? No neighbor was allowed to borrow it because it was brand new and it was mine and it was amazing. And then all of a sudden, over a couple years, maybe even over a couple, couple months, you just kind of have moved on. It's less important. It's less nice. It's, it's all banged up. It's not as new as the other thing. And so you don't treat it the way you would something new, Right? Think of your cars, right? If you got a brand new car today and, and it's like half sunny like it is today, aren't we all at the car wash? And we're like, they're going to wash this thing and it's going to rain tomorrow, but it doesn't care because it's a brand new car. And then others of us, like most of us in the room, we have the beaters and we're kind of like, I could wash it, but it's just going to rain tomorrow, so why bother, right? It's just not really that important, right? Or, or the interior is, you know, all messed up and so you don't worry. It, the less you uh, respect something or appreciate it, the lower its worth will become. And the lower its worth becomes, the less we think about it, the less we worry about it, and the less we treat it with respect that it's due. And unfortunately, what had happened in this culture and is happening, I believe, in our culture as well, is we have lost the um, respect and appreciation of just being human. We've lost the dignity of treating women with respect and, and just treating them as if it's just a body. It's just something to look at. I can't help myself. I just go there. Guys in the room, I, I just can't help but looking. It's just biological. It's just what happens. Here's a sad reality though. When we do this as a culture, when we don't treat it with respect, especially women and treating them with respect that they are due, the lower its worth becomes. And this is proved out by an interesting stat that was just very, very recent. I think it was last year even, this stat came out. And the stat is this, and you maybe back this up. I don't know because I'm not a woman, but the stat is this. 91% of women are unhappy with their bodies. 91%. That's ridiculous. 
right? I mean, and we as a culture feed this so often. We as a culture are, are all about this. And not to pick on this, but let me just kind of give us a, a real world example, right? Now, I don't know what you think about this scenario, and I'm not going to go into detail about it because it's mixed audience. But let me just kind of say, if many of us saw the halftime show, I don't know what your opinions are, vice versa. It doesn't matter, right? I'm not going to go into a rant on the halftime show. It's a halftime show. I get it. It makes money. It's the thing. Okay. Now, I'm not going to go into all of it, but let me just kind of say, if we have 90 million viewers, including women that should have been able to watch this of live images of the show. Can I just say that there was a very different standard or what was acceptable from the women's side when we saw what was on there versus what was expected of the guy's side when this was the image we were to live up to on the guy's end? Can we just say, like, I mean, can we just say that Bad Bunny is, is, is kind of like, if, if that's our, like, man, that's what we got to live up to. And then the, I'm not going to show the other side. But if the other side is what women have to live up to, can I just say it's a little unfair, right? I just... I almost pulled that off this morning. I was like, can I pull off the sequence shirt on my head? I don't know. Um, And so that's the standard that is put out there though, correct? I mean, that's the standard we live up to. And if you have women who are trying to figure out why don't I look like that? And then you have that and guys are like, praise God, I don't look like that, right? it's, It's very different and it's very, very jaded. And Paul would say, the less you respect something and appreciate something, the lower its worth will become. And we as a culture, I'm not gonna be a soapbox much longer, but we as a culture have diminished the role of women and have less respect than we've ever had. And I truly believe that this whole Me Too movement and everything else is very important because we have diminished it so much and we are still such a long way to go. We have not arrived in any stretch of the imagination. This church in Corinth had, had, had the same exact philosophy. They treated women with zero respect and they would say the same is true, that food is for the stomach and stomach for the food. It's simply biological. Food, purely needed, it's centered on me. I'm hungry, I eat, and even to excess. Women, it's purely bi- biological, nothing spiritual, nothing sacred. And the confrontation has to be brought in by Paul. And Paul comes at them and he says this, any natural desire has the potential to dominate you. Any good natural desire has the potential to dominate us. Verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but will not be dominated by anything. The church was dominated by this sexuality. The church was dominated by this idea of this guy who was sleeping with his mom and this idea of prostitution that was infiltrating the church. In other words, there was temple prostitutes all over the place and, and they would basically be sleeping with them even on church on that, that given day and then come to church and be like, it's good. We're fine. Everything's, everything's great. He says, I will not be dominated by anything. And here's the rub for all of us. Any natural desire has the potential to dominate us. This goes on long enough and you either become numb to it. If you've gone into sin long enough, as this church did, you either go numb or you go arrogant. And this church kind of did a little of both. Nothing more saddening than to hear women in particular or even kids that are in an abusive situation, right? And to hear them justify the behavior there's nothing worse than that. Where you think when they've come to the place of saying, this is as free as I can get. That's what the church was saying. This is as free as we can get. We're still gonna be dominated by our sexuality. This is as free as we get, Paul. This is, this is all I've got. 
and the only abuse or the only solution is abuse and domination is better than the alternative. And the church was celebrating that kind of mentality because we have a real enemy that would love to tell you the lie. It is easier to stay where you are than try and get out. This is as free as it gets. This goes all the way back to the garden. Did God really say life is this good? And these people in this church were trapped and dominated by their lusts and by their desires. And he said, this is as free as it gets. And God comes to us, men in the room in particular, and says, it's not. There is a freedom that is to be found in Christ. Nothing harder than seeing someone who could be free and is not. So the first two arguments are, one, all things are lawful for me. The second argument is stomach for food. It's all biological. This is as free as I get. I can't go anywhere else. Paul says both of those are lies. And then we have the third one. And this is where I want to spend a little bit of time because this is a phrase that I think we hear often. There's, this is the, fir- the third phrase, uh, maybe more today even than Paul's. But the phrase was simply this, who am I to judge, right? 5, 5 12 to 13, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those in... Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. In other words, this church had gotten so accustomed to this guy and his situation and these other guys and the prostitution thing, and they would just basically look at these guys and they would say, well, I'd love to deal with a problem, but who am I to judge? You know what I mean? I got my own issues and they probably have theirs, so I can't say anything. And Paul goes into this weird theological debate about judging, Right? And I would say there's probably one of the key verses that we throw, throw around all the time, Matthew 7, 1, right? Um, judge not lest you be judged. We even throw the King James at it because that's what we're used to. <laughs> judge not lest you be judged. And we toss it out. And we're like, you can't judge me because I'm not judging you. And so therefore, well, here's, here's an interesting thing about this idea of judging. And we're going to spend just uh, a couple minutes here because I think it's interesting. Um, Paul says that uh, this idea of judging, he, he, he kind of says two things which is interesting, right? We're, we're not to judge, he says, originally in five. But then in four, we just came out of last week, Paul says this, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive condemnation from, condemnation from God. He says in the beginning, we're not to judge. So, so Paul, again, what do we do? You, you're saying in chapter four, we're not to judge. And then you're telling us here, we are to judge. And so what is it? Are we not to judge? Yes. Are you to judge? Yes. I'm so confused. So, so how does that work? What are we supposed to do? And how does that work with those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ and those that do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ? And let me just kind of give you some, some markers on this for us as a church. Where sin is explicit, let us judge with bold and loving clarity. Where sin is explicit, let us judge with bold and loving clarity. But let us not judge other Christians' hidden purposes of the heart as sinful if they disagree with us over the best course of action. If it's it's just kind of, I think that's true, but I'm not really sure, then it says we are not to. But if there is an explicit sin like this one was, he says, yeah, we, we are to judge. Where sin is evident, Paul did not even have to be present to judge the situation. Where there is a gap in knowledge, we are to believe the best and not the worst. All these different sentences, right? Is it preference? Is it sin? 
Is there something closer to them that would be better to confront? There's a whole different gamut of how we handle this. And then he throws in, like I said, these, this idea of, of treating the outsider and judging those outside of Christ. So let me kind of give you a couple things of where to land on this. Again, number one, if the sin is evident and out there and, just, and, and everybody knows, then we who are, are believers are to confront the other believers with truth and say, you're messing up, you need to come around, you need to change, you need to repent of your sins and get closer to Christ. With outsiders, those who aren't in Christ, he's warning us not to be the kind of people who are running around our neighborhoods on a 24-7 basis calling out everybody's sin and saying, you're a sinner, you need to turn, you're a sinner, you need to turn, you're a sinner, you need to turn. He's saying, I want you to understand that the key to this is how you approach the relationship and how you approach the individual. Yes, there is sin. Yes, there is condemnation for sin. But with outsiders, he says, there is a line that we want to draw to say we want to build a relationship, but at the same time, we want to not deal with, we don't want to to enter into the sin with them. Same is true with believers. When we are dealing with their sin, we don't want to enter into sin with them. There's a passage he uses in, I believe, Galatians, where he says, you are to restore gently, but as you restore, be careful that you are not brought into the sin yourself, right? And this could go into a bunch of different specific ways for us. But ultimately, he is telling us that the key to any solid confrontation when it comes to sin is ultimately reconciliation, not just exposure of sin. The goal for the church in Corinth was not just to call this guy out and say, you're sinning and then leave him alone. The goal in any church is not just to call out sin, it's to reconcile believers so that they grow closer to Jesus Christ. The goal in those outside of the church is to call them out in sin, not for the purpose of just calling them out in sin, but the purpose of those who are outside of the church or outside of Jesus Christ is to call them into the carpet on their sin so that there could be reconciliation to show their exposure of their need for Jesus. Does that make sense? So yes, we are to have the conversations. Yes, we are to figure out this whole judging thing. And we can go into a whole sermon series on, on how and when and why we judge and those kind of things. But ultimately, here's the heart of what Paul's getting at. You can't avoid it in church and just expose it and expect it to go away. You also can't praise it and accept it and be like, this is awesome. You can't become numb and you can't be apathetic. And the same is true to those outside of Christ. You can't just be numb and say, well, that's just society. They're going to do what they're going to do. But you also can't be praising it either and being like, man, isn't this awesome? All this sin that's happening around us in our culture and in our world, isn't it just the best thing ever? Aren't we just progressing so far? He says in both scenarios, it's a relationship and it's a call to reconciliation. And again, we don't have time to maybe fully dive into this area, but I truly believe we must walk with greater courage, greater compassion, and probably clearer lines to those outside of Christ than we ever have before. We need greater conversations over greater condemnations because the real issues were and are our arrogance and our apathy. Let's go into five, six, and eight. Of, of, of chapter 5. He says this in 6 and 8. You are boasting, which is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul says, here's how we deal with this issue. 
here's, we've got the issues, we've got the excuses, here's the solution. We deal with it in sincerity and we deal with it in truth. And he uses an amazing image of, of bread. And it's, it's a perfect image because in bread, this leaven is another word for yeast. And so if you put it in bread, it causes it to what? Inflate, puff up, expand, get bigger. But it's really just hot air, correct? Right? And he's saying the same thing here. When we deal with this sin, the boasting is this puffing up of air. It's just empty air and it's doing no good. The boasting you're doing is just puffing you up. Do you not know that a little puffing up or a little leaven ruins the entire bread? And he says, if you, if you think of it in that way, he says, if it's, if it's contaminating the church, even a little bit of arrogance and the fact of this couple or this guy who is doing this thing inappropriately in his family and getting away with it, or whether it's these guys and this prostitution thing that's happening in the other realm, both of them are becoming arrogant. They're getting puffed up. They're becoming full of themselves. And then the church is not addressing it. So they're becoming full of themselves and they're getting puffed up. And he says, therefore, do not get puffed up with malice and with evil, but instead with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the one side is this puffed up bread that has evil and malice in it and it's all expanding and bloating and it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger until it's gonna pop and it's just gonna be disgusting. He says the other side though is this unleavened bread that's not rising up. It's not getting puffed up in itself, but it's dealing with the issue and it's dealing with the issue in two key words, in sincerity and in truth. And here's the thing for us this morning. Sincerity literally means judged in light of the sun. This Greek word sincerity is actually this thing of being exposed to light and seeing it for what it is, right? It's that moment in the mirror where you wake up in the morning and the lights are off and you look in the mirror and you're like, I'm not doing too bad. And then you turn the light on and you're like, oh my gosh, right? And you don't, you're like, I don't, even, I don't even know. And I'm not even, you know, I'm a guy, I don't wear makeup, but maybe I should because wow, that looking back to me right now is not what I thought. And it's just scary. And so when we turn the light on, we get the full exposure. Like in, in our bathroom, we've got like the, um, the light over here by the shower that's kind of a half light. And I like to turn that one on because it doesn't make me look as bad. But then when I turn the full ones on in front of the mirror uh, that's right there. It's like the daylight bulbs. and You're kind of like, whoa, <laughs> you're old. Um, and so it's this whole thing just gets exposed by light. And Paul is saying, when we are dealing with this sincerity, we are doing this. We are not judging them. We are not judging them incorrectly. We are simply doing what we're called to do and taking that person, standing them in light of Jesus Christ and say, how does your actions measure up with the holiness of Jesus Christ? How does your issue line up with scripture and let Christ shine his light on the issue? And as we expose the sin, we look at it together and we correct it together in sincerity. Sincerity means I don't avoid it and not drag you into the light being like, oh, it's just their problem. They'll deal with it as a Christian brother or sister in Christ. I take them into the light of Christ and I say, both of us together, we're gonna stare at your problem. We're gonna stare at your sin together and we're gonna fix this thing because I love you that much sincerity is what is lacking in much church discipline today. I truly believe it because we, we will just, we'll attack the problem, we'll deal with the sinner, but we don't have the love and compassion to walk them out of the sin itself. We, we expose it, we put them in the light of Jesus and we say, do better. Instead, as a church, what Paul's calling them to do is to bring them in, to reconcile them together, to walk this ugly path together with them, saying, I love you enough to confront you, and I love you enough to walk this through with you. 
And I pray that as a church, we would be those kind of people that we, if we see sin in a brother or sister, we wouldn't just turn a blind eye and be like, man, that is messed up. I don't want to look at that. I don't want to be part of that. They'll get it. I want to be a church that says, man, I love them enough that I know this is going to destroy them in the long run. So I need to step in. And it's going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be awkward and nobody likes that conversation. But you have to be able to love someone enough to pull them aside and say, what you're doing is wrong and we need to change course. Sincerity. It's pure in your inner motives. You're not doing it just so that you look better. Isn't that funny how Paul knew like the leavened bread thing is in all of us? Well, at least I'm not doing that, right? That's not the point. The point is that I'm putting myself with you in this. I want to turn to Jesus. I want you to turn to Jesus because I love you, not because it puffs me up, not because it makes me look better. He says, I want you to do it in sincerity. And the last part is in truth. Verse five, he's explaining the Christian error of putting this thing in handling truth. He says, I don't want you just to be able to say, I'm sincere and I want there to be biblical support in it. There was a um, situation, we were uh, part of a, we went to the Tesla pancake breakfast um, a while back and um, I ran into a, a friend of mine and uh, their, their, uh, his, his spouse was dealing with some, um, I think just nervous and anxiety and stuff like that, I, I would say. And um, as she was dealing with it, um, some of the counsel that they were receiving from the church or I'm sorry, not from the church, from another member in the church, was that this uh, anxiety and things were um, caused because of not enough faith and not enough um, trust and um, those kind of things. And then in another church I was in, there was an, uh, a lady that was um, kind of on uh, the other side of things going even more in depth and that people had sicknesses or illnesses and she would um, bring in a, um, a healing wand and um, would be healing trying to heal people in the church. And, and both of them were kind of pointing to more the demonic and everything else and, and, and leading um, these people into weird places. And um, this guy and, and other, at the other church, there was some other people that came to the pastors and they said, can you, can you help us? I don't know if this is right. I don't know if this is wrong, but they keep calling and they keep telling me that this is what I should do. Um, and, and I said, and as pastors, we are called to be the chief problem solvers. And so we are to deal with it and not just kind of say, well, I don't want to deal with her and and those issues. So I'm just going to let it go. I'll pray for you. But that was kind of, unfortunately, what happened in this guy's scenario. And also what happened in our church where some, the, the pastors in the church just kind of said, well, we don't really want to deal with it. Um, And so we're kind of just let it go and hopefully it'll go away. And we'll, 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 you know, help you along the way. But ultimately, I don't know if we can really and he go, he was, as he was talking, I felt like I was getting more and more frustrated because having been through that and also hearing this of what this knowledge of not enough faith is doing to her anxiety is, is crippling. And I said, no, as pastors, we're, we're to confront that stuff. We're to go full in on that and pull them aside. And, and, and unfortunately, I've been in part of those conversations where I've had to deal with, with different um, parts of the church that have come up and, 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 and doctrine issues that have come up. And um, one of which there was this... Um, weird sacrifice thing that was going on, like not sacrificial, like real sacrifices, but um, there was these pictures that were being shown um, to the kids ministry about, you know, sacrifices. And um, I looked at these pictures and I'm like, whoa, <laughs> okay, you're, you're, you're not wrong. Um, <laughs> that is what it looked like, but I don't think a second grader needs to see that, right? I mean, they're going home going, mom, I saw this thing in church and there was blood and there was a sheep and his name was, I don't know. And just, it was bad. 
And, and I remember having to, to sit down with this couple and be like, we, we, can't, we can't do that. <laughs> like, that's just not really the best thing to do. And they were mad and they were upset and they were just, I can't believe it. We're just trying to be doctrinally pure and we're trying to make sure it's the right thing. And I was like, oh my gosh. And they ended up leaving and you got the whole thing. But ultimately, because I stood up to those, those things, there was a reaction they left. The same thing is true in these other two places, that if we don't take the stand, it's ultimately going to get worse. And the same thing is true in, in Corinth. If we didn't take the stand early, it's going to get worse. And so church discipline and correction was needed, is needed, and we as pastors have to take that role seriously. We are shepherds. The Bible calls us shepherds, and sometimes sheep kind of go off on their own, and sometimes sheep bite you because they don't like you, and you need to be okay with that, and you need to be able to correct that and be like, stop biting me. It's not nice, okay? But you still need to be able to deal with it because if they're biting you, they're biting the other sheep, right? And if they're biting the other sheep, the other sheep are like, stop biting us, and they're like going to the shepherd, like, he's biting me, and the shepherd's like, not my problem. That's an issue, right? And so we in the church are called to discipline and correct. And as pastors, that's a responsibility. But Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, it's all our responsibilities. And he says that we are all part of this because unconditional love, and here's my last point this morning, unconditional love is not the same as unconditional approval. It's just not. And we want to believe that it's true. Well, I love them enough, so I don't really want to say anything. That is the worst thing you could do. Do you love them enough to actually be honest or do you want to just be shady and and, and skirt around the issue? Unconditional love is not the same as unconditional approval in the church and outside the church. I can love somebody through their sin. That is not a problem. But I cannot ever approve of it. When you are unable to speak truth, you are crippling that person and you are doing so for the sake of your ego. Joel, when you are unable to speak truth, you are crippling that person and all for the sake of your ego because you don't want to look bad, because you don't want to go into that conversation, because you're scared, but I'm crippling them if I'm not able to do it. When you are unable to speak truth, Joel, you are destroying that person and all for the sake of your ego. This morning, community, for us, I I don't um, think we have the problem of sincerity. I don't think we have a problem with relationships. I think we're great with that. But I do think sometimes we, we, we don't like to make waves. We don't want to cause any disruption. So we don't want to speak truth sometimes. And Paul is saying to us, to the church in Corinth, as a church, if there is sin, blatant sin in the church, we are to confront it. We are to go after it. And we are to love people to the point of reconciliation. Paul is not attacking the church. He is loving the church. He says, you have many spiritual guides, but you have no father's. He's saying, I want to be a father to you. I want to correct this because I love you so much. This morning, I pray that as we continue as a church, that God would continue to build our unity in him and that we continue to keep our focus on him and that ultimately we are able to speak love to people because we care enough about them, that we're able to exercise church discipline because we care. Let me pray for us this morning.